And we begin with good day, sir. <laughs> Geeks come in all shapes and sizes. Um, and that they come into all kinds of things. That I, <laughs> uh, I was thinking more about the satanic panic. By the scholar Gary Gygax. Well, wait, hold on. I said good day, sir. Not defending Roman slavery by any no, stretch. By but oh God, that's bad. Let them vote. Fuck off. <laughs> when historians, and especially British historians, yeah. want to get cute. Oh, it's, it's in there. Uh, okay. it, it is not worth the journey. This is a Geek History of Time. I'm Ed Blaylock. I've been a geek since birth, really, but uh, one of the most notable aspects of my early geekdom was the fact that on a trip to Florida with my family, uh, I sat in the back of my parents' car driving across the state reading the, the Fellowship of the Ring at the age of seven. I wasn't able to follow very much of it, but the images warped my brain permanently for <laughs> life. Damien, how about you? Uh, I'm Damien Harmony. Uh, I've been a geek uh, most of my life. I am now raising the next generation of geeks. Uh, my daughter and I watched all of The Lord of the Rings, okay. extended cuts. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, over winter break. My God, that's an iron butt right there. Boy, howdy. Uh, and now we're working our way through uh, The Hobbit. And right. she absolutely loves, I forget his name, the guy who busted out of the barrel with the axes and went to town on the orcs. Oh, yeah. He doesn't talk much. Uh, Bomber, I think. Bomber. Yeah. Yes. Um, and she loved that scene. So right. I'm very proud one. of my little it girl. It is a good one. Yeah. Uh, what do you do for a living? Uh, I'm a middle school history teacher. Oh. Uh, which means a glut for punishment. Um, <laughs> and uh, my background in history... Uh, I don't have an advanced degree, but uh, I do a lot of reading. Uh, I got my bachelor's from University of California at Davis, go Ags, uh, in history, focusing on Western Europe, East Asia, and a little bit on American history. How about you? I am a Latin teacher, uh, formerly a social science teacher, though. Uh, I uh, got a master's degree in gender history, technically. I guess technically it's just history, but okay. I focused on gender history, okay. uh, specifically on women's suffrage in okay. England. But I also dabbled quite a bit in American history, specifically American women's history, mm -hmm. the history of the birth control movement. Mm -hmm. uh, stayed very focused on, on, on the women, but uh, as well as I did dabble in medieval history mm -hmm. for quite a bit. And given that I'm a Latinist, I know a fair amount about Rome. Well, kind of just so. by dint of being adjacent to it all the time and yes. teaching it's yeah. kind of unavoidable yeah it's, yeah. it's helpful all right yeah i so. can believe it so um got a question for you do it you have mentioned watching the full extended cut yes of uh the lord of the rings recently yeah instead of just um, going on a hike i watched short watched people taking short a hike people taking a hike <laughs> if they were if they were taller, the movies would have been shorter. Would have been yeah, odd, odd. That's <laughs> that's an interesting statement. I had never thought of it that yeah. way, but you're right. Um, so how much do you know about Tolkien's life experiences? Uh, I've not read anything about it. I okay. know that he got through World War One. Yes. His movies seem to be couched in um, neo-Nazi or Nazi light ideology. See, it's really funny that you say that. <laughs> yeah? Because 
the the interpretation that mm-hmm. you come away with from that I think has a lot to do with um, the fact that he was a lover of uh, Germanic mythology mm. that he was a lover of the source material mm-hmm. uh, of, of that source material mm-hmm. that that and Anglo-Saxon stories which is itself right. Germanic right. informed the tropes he used and sure. all that kind of stuff He's it's, also British. It's and worth well. It's, they have an anti-Semitic streak in them. Well, what's interesting? Mm-hmm. Speaking of that, mm-hmm. I'm going I'm to address that right away. Oh, good. Uh, in '39, oh, the Hobbit, the, the, Hobbit yeah. the Hobbit was published in 1937. Okay. And a German publisher approached him in 1939, mm-hmm. and because of German law at the time, right. he had to provide proof that he was not Jewish. Right. And his response was. I am not fortunate enough to be able to claim any of those wonderfully talented, yes. wonderfully creative, wonderfully... I mean, he, he was effusive in his praise mm-hmm. of, of Jewish people. Uh, I cannot claim any of them in, in my ancestry. But, you know, now that you bring up the question, I don't think I want to be published in Germany anymore. Uh, Good on he, he threw the finger. Good. Um, his, his, uh, his choice of words about Hitler... In correspondence that he wrote to his sons and other people, mm-hmm. is is the way you and I regularly talk after I've had a beer about <laughs> a current president. Uh-huh. It is scathing uh-huh. and disdainful. Would be an understatement. Sure. Um, he he was he was anti-fascist. Now, sure, it's worth noting he was a Catholic. So there is a certain level of belief in the legitimacy of hierarchy. There's right. a certain, you know, deference to authority, all that kind of stuff. But it is because of mm-hmm. Lenny Riefenstahl and the and the cinematic language that got used by the fascists, and right. the fact that his work was inspired by okay. a lot of the same source material. He he can be viewed, or the movies can be viewed that way. They now, they certainly have a bit of a shading around the edges like that, with the okay. elves being kind of the ubermenschen who don't have to worry about snow, for instance, and yeah. who have all these cool special powers. Yeah, and the dwarves essentially being money grubbing, greedy, big nosed, long bearded. Yes, they look like the goblins from Hogwarts. Yeah. You know, what, well, and and what should yeah. be noted is the mm-hmm. goblins from Hogwarts and the dwarves in the Lord of the Rings yeah. have the same antecedents in Germanic myth, which is to say, oh, dwarves and goblins were essentially yeah. yeah gnomes. All of them were basically the same critters. Yeah, depending on which scald it was who was telling the story that good night. Point. Very good okay. point. Um, so Tolkien is a victim of presentism. My, my thesis is yeah. he's a victim of presentism in that case. Okay. Now, it is interesting to note that the dwarvish language as presented in Lord of the Rings was influenced very heavily by Semitic language structures. Kazad, 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 I menu. Oh, wow. Uh, Kuzdul, the mm-hmm. name of their language. Kazad, Kuzdul mm-hmm. operates under the idea that you have the consonants kzd, right, and the way they fit together, like in a Semitic language, the right. vowels that you insert changes what the meaning is, but they are all shades of the same word. Right. Okay. Kuzdul is their language. Kazad is the people. Mm-hmm. Okay, like Arabic. Like, yeah. S L A uh, or S L M. Salam. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Shalom. Shalom. Mm-hmm. Precisely. Yep. Yep. Um, so <clears throat> it is interesting that that is there. 
So he's might pulling have been, on it. That might have been that might have been subconscious because of mm-hmm. the times that he lived in. You know, and that's what I said, like yeah, know, previously you know, with the giant yeah. rod brush. But yeah, um, but but he he was uh, he was genuinely an anti anti fascist, cool. genuinely uh, a naturalist mm-hmm. in a very big way, which I'm going to get into in more detail here. Now. Um, I'm kind of looking at the time because we were trying to trying to not turn this into a two-hour one, and I'm trying to figure out what what parts of all this to to keep in. Oh, what's you know in what? Just over. find a break spot, and right. then we'll we'll turn right. it into a two two week. If, if necessary, you'll get to episode right. A and an episode B of this. All right. One. So, well, we'll see. I'm gonna I'm yeah. gonna see okay. what I can do. So, this will not be brief, the director's cut. Brief background biography. Sure. Um, he was born in 1892 in South Africa. Okay. His family was originally German, as you might note from the sound of his name, Tolkien. Mm-hmm. They had come into England in the 16th century. Okay. And uh, his so by the time he was born, his whole family was thoroughly English, culturally, sure. you know, in, in every way. All but name. Yeah. His father was a bank manager in South Africa. Okay. Uh, he came to England at age three with his mother on what was supposed to be a long family visit. And while they were there, his father died. Oh, which created a problem because this was 1895 and there really was no prospect for him or his brother now that their father was dead and their mother was a widow with two very young children. They were left literally orphans uh, in the sense that it was used at the time, fatherless. Right. Um, and so they, he grew up in in strained, very strained circumstances. Money was always an issue. They were always uh, depending on family or other people. The kindness of others. Yes. He yeah. learned to read by the age of four. Wow. Wrote fluently by the age of five. And his mother instilled in him a love of languages from the very start. She started teaching him Latin, as a matter of fact. Oh. Uh, basically at five or six. When's that um, ever going to do anybody any good? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you might be able to get a job as a Latin teacher, but who the fuck would want to do that? <laughs> I um, am a cautionary tale to my students. I tell them that regularly. <laughs> if you do, if you do really well at this, be careful. <laughs> uh, you might become a cook on a submarine, which is another story. Um, now, his mother converted to Catholicism uh-huh. in 1900. Now, her family were Baptists. Uh, her husband's family were Church of England. She became a Catholic because the teachings of the church Mm -hmm. gave her a great deal of comfort in the face of the hardship she was facing as a widow with two young children. Makes a lot of sense. And uh, she died of acute diabetes in 1904. Now, did they know to classify it as such at the time? Yes. Okay. Yes, she had died. Her cause of death was diabetes mellitus. It was only like... 10, 15 years later, they that came they up with insulin. insulin. Yeah. Yes, she she was one of the Bummer. last casualties yeah. on a historical scale, one of the last casualties of diabetes mellitus. Uh, she lived to be about 37, if I remember the number correctly, which was wow. about as long as a diabetes patient could expect to yeah. live at that time. Uh, by that time, he was 12, um, and that left him and his brother uh, in the care of Father Francis Xavier Morgan, now, is Who his brother older or younger than younger, me? Younger. Okay. Younger brother. Um, and his mother left them in the care of this friend and kind of mentor of hers, Father Morgan, mm-hmm. uh, partly out of concern that her own family or their father's family would pull them away from the church. Oh, okay. So. Uh, he earned a scholarship to King Edward's School in Birminghamshire, a boys' school of notable prestige. Okay. Uh, and then attended and graduated with first class honors in 1915. 
And so he's uh, wait, roughly... Uh, 15, sorry. Uh, 1915, he graduates with honors from Exeter College in Oxford. That got scrambled in my notes. Sure. Um, when he was 16 years old, mm-hmm. and Edith was her name. She was a couple of years older. Mm-hmm. Uh, he met the woman who became his wife and the love of his life. Nice. And the story is quintessential early 20th century bourgeois melodrama. <laughs> um, his father figure, Father Morgan, mm-hmm. uh, forbade him to see her because he was afraid, one, she was a distraction from his studies, and two, she was a Protestant. Oh. Her family did not approve of him because, because he was an orphan with no prospects. And a Catholic. And a Catholic. And uh, he was ordered not to speak to her until he was 21. They were parted for five years. This is so British. It's so intensely British. It's, so it's, British. it's something out of a drawing room drama. Yeah. Uh, they were separated for five years. Uh-huh. And he, he followed Father Morgan's instructions. He did not want to go against the, wow. the man who had taken over the role of his father. Okay. Um, and he, he said to his son years later that I put your mother through a great deal of suffering. And, you know, I feel badly for it. But mm-hmm. I couldn't have done it any differently. Uh, and then at the end of five years... God, that is so British. At the end of five years, he wrote to her, <laughs> uh-huh. and he said, uh, I have never for a day loved you any less than I did five years ago. Will wow. you still, you know, consent to, you know, uh, be with me? Let us court. She had accepted an offer of engagement from another man uh-huh. who she broke it off with. This sounds like my grandparents. Tolkien. Okay. And um, so they got married, okay. uh, and everybody thought there was they were doomed because sure. he had no prospects. She she converted to Catholicism in order to marry him. And so by this time, of course, we mm-hmm. were talking about you know 1914, 1915, The war has started. Yes. And at the outset of the war, Tolkien got a deferment in order to finish his degree. This really sounds like my grandparents. Now. Yeah. Uh, but after graduating mm-hmm. in 15, he had to either join up or be ostracized. The, as, as he put it, the hints from family were becoming uh, pointed. Is this the, the White Feather campaign? Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. By the way, uh, Four Feathers, one of my favorite old-timey movies. Okay. The newer one with Heath Ledger, yeah. very good as well. Okay. It, by newer, I mean it's yeah. 17 years old now, yeah, yeah, at yeah. least. Yeah. Very good as well. It frankly gets deeper into the pathology and, yeah. and the emotionality yeah. of it. Yeah. But I'm still a sucker for the first one. Okay. I'll yeah. have to look it up. It's really good. So he got a second lieutenant's commission in the Lancashire Fusiliers. Uh-huh. Spent 11 months in training with them. Okay. And then in June 1916, he was sent to France, arriving at the front just in time to participate in the Battle of the Somme. Bad timing. <laughs> yes. Bad timing. I know a lot about timing. the Battle of the Somme. Yeah, okay. Well, you can fill in some of the gaps here in my sure. notes. He participated directly in the assaults on the Schwaben Redoubt and Leipzig Salient. Um, Did he survive? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> good, good one. Thank good you. One. Well, because he has like a 1 in 50,000 chance yeah, of not. He, yeah, no, he has, he has so, a really remarkable chance. By of the not. way, the Battle of Cannae. Yeah. Hannibal versus the Romans. Yeah. Uh, they lost more people in that battle that day than the Battle of the Psalms first day. Really? And I would just like to put that into perspective because those guys were all using swords in the Battle of the Psalms and stabby swords. Stabby, well, muscle-powered kinetic weaponry. Right, whereas the Battle of the Psalms is you are... Machine guns, shelling, grenades. Yeah, and you don't get to run. 
have to walk because you don't want to be tired by the time you get to, to the, the, to the German trench. trench. Yeah, like they, mm. they that was a special. Yeah, like and and no armor. By the way, yeah, the Romans had to stab through armor. Yes, and and they lost. By yeah. the way, yeah. like the, Hannibal yeah. and Hannibal. and his folks, they stabbed through Roman armor and shields. Yeah, well, part of the key there is if you're a professional soldier in that era, you know where the points are you need to hit. Also true. So, and you know how to make a how a, to make a gap, how a to shield yeah. unwieldy. Yeah. Also, the the other fun fact about the Battle of Cannae. Yeah, the Romans found themselves backed up against a, a, a lake. Yeah, it doesn't go well when you're backed no, up against a it lake. It never does. It so. historically that's a bad way to go. Also, a lot of their city leaders were involved yeah. in that war. Oh yeah. So yeah, a lot of the political. But yeah, Battle of the Somme, fifty thousand so, dead in one day. Pretty yeah. terrible. Yeah, Schwab and Reinout, Leipzig salient. And then um, he he was never the most physically robust individual to okay. begin with. And uh, he wound up, um, because of the circumstances that they were having to sleep in, uh, he was at one point attacked by lice, as thousands of other men were. And sure. he came down, as a result of that, he came down with trench fever. Oh, wow. <clears throat> he was medically invalided for the rest of the war. Wow. Spent time in and out of hospitals for another year, and then from 1917 on, he was in home front positions, mm-hmm. uh, still serving, still serving, but, but, on, yeah. but on the home front. Yeah. And what we mentioned, I don't remember which episode it was mm-hmm. uh, recently, but talking about oh, talking about super weapons. Uh-huh. Um, World War One mm-hmm. was the first major mechanized war. Yes. Okay. Um, machine guns mm-hmm. had been invented 20 years before, at least 10 years before. Um, well, you had Gatling guns, yeah, Gatling which are guns, a kind of machine, kind of machine gun. guns. Yeah. The first really self-loading machine guns are, right. are a creation of the early 20th century. Right. Uh, but <clears throat> machine guns, really huge, large-scale massed artillery, mm-hmm. uh, the earliest weapons of mass destruction in the form of gas, mm-hmm. trench warfare, all of them sold, and this mm-hmm. is an important point I want to bring up because it, it has bearing on one okay. of the things. They were all sold as scientific methods to make war more efficient. They were all sold as oh, yeah. the army that has the machine gun will right. be insurmountable. We have the right. Maxim gun, and they the, the difference is that we have the Maxim gun and they have not. Uh, that's Kipling's poetry talking about somebody else. <laughs> but you know these yeah. these were no. There's no way it, it doesn't make any sense. Why would you fight when somebody you know a crew of two men manning a liquid cooled machine gun can cut down a platoon? Now I want to I want to point <coughs> platoon type. I want to I want to for everybody listening. I apologize. <laughs> I want to point out the importance of it being a crew weapon. Had it not been a crew weapon, you would have not seen the lethality that you saw with it. Oh no! And here's why. Um, the amount of soldiers who refused to fire on their fellow men in war was somewhere to the tune of 90%. Yes. They still fired, <coughs> but they would fire and miss. Over their heads, fire and miss. And yeah. some of that is panic shooting, oh God. Yeah. And a lot of that is it's hard to kill a man. Yes. Um, as, as much as like we think, oh, it's getting worse. We've gotten way more civilized. Now, yeah. in World War One, to train a soldier... You had him shoot at a bullseye. Yes. You don't start having soldiers shooting at um, gazunite humanoid. Yeah, at humanoid uh, silhouettes until 
Vietnam, maybe Korea. Because they're still shooting at yeah. bullseyes in, in World War II. Yeah. And as a result, you it's hard to transfer that skill over to, that's an actual person, that's my brother. Yeah. Um, you also had, during the first Christmas, you had the Christmas truce. Yes. You had all these instances where people clearly don't want to kill each other. A crew weapon, on the other hand, though, you are no longer accountable only to yourself and your own conscience. You are accountable to somebody else. And as we've seen in bullying, yeah. as we've seen in using the use of chariots in Britain against the Romans, yeah. when you have <coughs> another person that you're responsible to, yeah. you have to kill more. Yeah. And so when you have a two-man or even a three-man, because you also have the spotter, yeah. a three-man crew, that's when the lethality really rips them open. I mean, yes, you're throwing th- hundreds and thousands of, of rounds down range, yeah. but now it's, I can't... <clears throat> I can't I betray I these guys in front of me. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't have the ability to shirk hitting the target. Right. Yeah. So very yes, important. That's that is an important point. Yeah. Um, also, an important point is um, you know the the uh, conceptualization of um, the way command structure mm-hmm. uh, altered over the course of the war. The way staff developments had happened in in the end of the nineteenth century, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of a general staff, mm-hmm. you know, coming up with these war plans, the mechanistic way in which that was now handled, the quote scientific way, yeah, the scientific yeah. way in which it was all handled, you know, war colleges becoming a thing, right? Uh, in in a very modern sense, the idea of there being a staff corps within the army at the high levels of command, right, was a creation of. Um, shortly before Napoleon. Yeah, and people's jobs yeah. were specifically to come up with plans for different yes. things. You, yes. you had the pigeonholes yeah. for the Vosch-Liefen plan. Yeah. yeah. And so um, so all of, the, all of these things, all mm-hmm. of these developments were supposed to make it so that, look, we're going to be the winning side. Right. We have these tools. We have these techniques. We have this stuff. Sue for peace. We have, <laughs> we, yeah, it's just like, what's the point? You right. Really, come on. And then you had politics run completely out of control and the opportunity for any one actor at the beginning right. of the war to say, whoa, 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 hold up, was eliminated. Especially when you got a guy like, you know, Kaiser fucking Wilhelm <laughs> running Germany. Uh, who thank I thank could, goodness I could we've devote, learned. <clears throat> I could devote an episode <laughs> to what a shitbag <laughs> Wilhelm was. Uh, like as a human being, not not even not even as a crowned head of state, just right. as a person, what yeah. a complete asshole he was. My favorite part is that he left afterwards. Yeah, and it's like, God damn it, son of a bitch, like, face yeah. some justice, face some kind of something. Yeah, um, and so all all of these developments were supposed to make war scientific, make it modern, make it effectively unwageable. Sure. They did make it a lot more efficient, but because everybody was playing with the same murderous toy box, it just upped the lethality, and it just upped the right. level and the scale of the destruction, and it turned everything into a dragging, muddy, hideous, maiming war of attrition. Yes. And, you know, if you think about the trenches, mm-hmm. in order to cope with the defensive capability because at this point machine guns are big heavy yeah they're not mobile weapons they're not, they're not yeah. mobile you can't pick them up and carry them you don't see that until the, the browning automatic rifle and right. German developments 
in World War II. In World War I, they are a fixed emplacement. They are a defensive weapon. Yes. Well, here's the deal. You march up as far as you can, and then you build your own defensive emplacement so they can't, you know, yeah, advance out zooks. of theirs. Yeah, yeah. It's just, you know. And, and then you wind up building a city of moles. Mm-hmm. And you sit there in the rain and the mud, and everybody gets sick, and everybody right. gets cold. And then on the German side, particularly supply chains start running short toward the end of the war. So everybody's right. hungry. Everybody, nobody has dry shoes or socks. Everybody's equipment is falling apart. Oh, and by the way, you've brought in your colonials, so yeah. you can't even talk to the guys next to you anyway. Yeah. And you've got good old fashioned racism. Yeah. And you've got good old fashioned classism. And you got. Yes. And you've got the the. You know, we talked about Rod Serling a few episodes back. Yeah. You've got... What what made Rod Serling such a wonderful writer was the fact that in World War II, he, there was a guy in his unit, I think he was in the Pacific, who was standing underneath a palm tree doing something or other. I think entertaining the troops. And something either knocked a coconut loose and it killed him or... No, it was a supply do- drop crushed him. Jesus. Out of the fucking blue. <laughs> oh my god. And and I might have compressed the story with something but, but, funny, but, but, but it was a very unexpected and chaotic death. Yeah. And Pointless. unnecessary. Yes. Pointless, unnecessary, random. And and you had that yeah. in World War One in the trenches. Death the would time. could and would come at any moment. A sniper catching you when you let your guard yeah. down. Uh, the enemy starts shelling, and you're not able to get to cover in time. Your buddy's munitions your, go off for no good reason. For no good reason, um, <clears throat> you know. On and, top of and, all that other misery. Yeah. Well, and and then and then the manner in which men were dying, right, was hideous. Yes. You know, in in I mean, if you look at skeletons out of a mass grave from antiquity, mm-hmm. they died ugly too. But you know, I mean, you can see sword wounds predictably. Skulls, but but it, but it's predictable. The the <coughs> rapidity. With which it happened mm-hmm. was, I mean, you know, you could see the the uh, uh, Carthaginian, you know, bringing yes. his bringing his falcata down, and when it hits your buddy's skull, you're like, well, that's what was gonna happen. And my buddy was standing there trying to stab trying, with the gladius, trying to stab him with the gladius. So you know, yeah. that's what happened, right? In this case, it's <coughs> like out of nowhere, there's an explosion, and the guy standing next to you is half gone, mm-hmm. and you're not, and you're not. And tomorrow you might be the and guy standing next to someone you. else. And and so it's it's hideous in a way war mm-hmm. hadn't been before. It's unpredictable and chaotic in a way war hadn't been before. And it's also more personal because they had the program of signing up with your neighborhood. Yes, they had the pals program. Yeah. And so you're not just seeing a guy. It's I mean you and I have been friends for years. Yeah. And if we were in a situation like that, that would be awful. Yeah. Obviously, and and the surviving one would just be like, oh my god, I lost yeah. my friend. Yeah. But we didn't grow up together. Yeah. You know? No. That is profoundly different. <clears throat> oh, yeah. It's devastating. Yes. Devastating, especially on the scale of casualties. Knowing happen. that you're going to have to go back to his family. Yeah. Knowing that you're going to walk you're, down the street. You're going to be the one mm-hmm. to go back to town and kiss the girls. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's not going to have and that chance. And you had planned that. And, yeah. And, and nobody nobody planned it. Nobody and you're knew. now walking by the, the same bookstore you two used to sit down and yeah. read books at. I mean, just... Or drink tea in, in the case yes. of Tolkien and his friends from school. There you go. Um, and so it was... The, the casualties for the Somme, mm-hmm. uh, for British Empire units, so, mm-hmm. so UK includes, and colonials, right. topped half a million. Right. 
and it was massive losses for gains of yards of territory. Yeah, I think not not, not even miles. I right. mean, you know, less less than a mile of territory. Yeah. over the course of those offenses. And by the end of the war, uh, Tolkien had lost nearly all of his boyhood friends to the conflict. And like I'm talking about, no doubt, as a lieutenant commanding mm-hmm. all of these soldiers, he no doubt witnessed firsthand random, pointless, ugly, horrible death everywhere around him. And if he's an officer, then he has to actually write up reports about this, too. has to write up reports, and he has to be the one to blow the whistle for his men to go over the top. Yeah. Yeah. So... There's a lot of survivor guilt going oh, on there. In, There's a intense, lot of that. Intense, yeah. I mean, all kinds of that stuff. And also, so, real quick, you had the Battle of the Somme. Yeah. You had the other side, too. You had the Battle of Verdun. Yeah. Where the actual plan was, we're going to lose five for every two they lose, mm-hmm. and that's how we'll win. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, because, and again, we're talking attrition. about plans. Were, well, it's a war of attrition, and we're mm-hmm. talking about, again, plans being made by a general staff. Yes. Who are looking at the math mm-hmm. and are removed from the blood and the mud and the shit and yeah. you know the the, the and you maiming. kind of have to be well and you have to be for from for for in, in the role of a military acting as the uh, violent arm of a nation state right. protecting its interests right you you have to do that yes and so. You know, there is there is the easy moral argument that, oh my God, they're <coughs> monsters. Right. Which is legitimate, but there's you also have to take into account, you know. This, we have to be, this, but that's Sherman too. Yeah. We have to be monsters so that they quit. So that they quit. We have right. to force them to put down their weapons. Right. And it's going to suck. Yeah. But we got to do it. Yeah. So, um, in World War II, mm-hmm. um, John Ronald Rule had three sons, John Francis, Michael, and Christopher. Uh, John Francis was born in 1917, became a priest. Okay. Michael served during the Battle of Britain mm-hmm. in, an anti, in anti-aircraft <clears throat> artillery. And Christopher served briefly in the RAF. Um, no, wait, wait. Who's their father? John Ronald Rule. Tolkien. Oh. The author. I didn't Tolkien. know that that yeah. was his yeah. name. Yeah, John Ronald Rule, <laughs> Tolkien. In gotcha. Ronald to the family. Oh. We called him Ronald. Really? Yes. Because there were other Johns around. Natch. So. Yeah. Um, I've, been, <clears throat> I've never heard his name until this moment. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, um, it's interesting talking about his youngest son, Christopher, uh-huh. uh, toward the end of the war, mm-hmm. wasn't old enough to, to join up until actually beginning of 45. Okay. Or late 44, beginning of 45. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wrote to his father talking about, you know, flying aircraft and all this stuff. And uh, talking about aircraft being used in war. Of course, by this time, Tolkien had started writing Fellowship of the Ring and the other, the other Ring books. Uh-huh. Uh, he said that he felt about aircraft being used by the RAF <coughs> the way Sam or Frodo might feel about... Uh, hobbits mounting orc birds to defend the Shire, or Nazgul birds, the the, mm-hmm. the Dwarlach, yeah, yeah, yeah. the huge you know Dracoliths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he he. Military technology after his experiences in the First World War, he wow. was like, no man. Y- yes, I am a loyal citizen of the Empire. I'm going to serve. I understand Hitler right. is a monster. We got to do what we got to do, but I don't have to fucking like it. Wow, you know, um, and so he himself mm-hmm. 
uh, initially got a code uh, got called up to serve in a code breaking unit. Okay. And he said, if that's what you need me to do, I'll do it. And right. they eventually determined that they had other people, Bletchley Park, all that stuff. Right. They had mathematicians, and they figured out the mathematicians were going to be able to do it more effectively than linguists. Okay. So thank you, Dr. Tolkien. We don't need you. Okay. Now, he was a linguist. He was a linguist. Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, and so all of them witnessed the Battle of Britain <clears throat> and all the other terrible things that happened over the course of the war. Sure. Uh, brought about by Blitzkrieg, the use by both sides of total war tactics. Right. And ultimately of nuclear weapons. <coughs> so how does this inform the Lord of the Rings? Okay. I'm, I'm seeing some you're, threads you're, there's, here. There's some, there's some yeah. kind of, you see some stuff forming. Yeah. Um, he wrote it, first of all, to create a mythology for England. Tolkien started with the Silmarillion in 1914. While he was waiting to go to France, he got bored and started writing. Now, what is the Silmarillion? The Silmarillion is the uh, story of the creation of Middle-earth. And in The Lord of the Rings, you hear that this is the third age of Middle-earth. The Silmarillion is the story of the first age and the second age. And okay. he never finished it in his lifetime. He was constantly tinkering with it because he never quite got everything right. And after his death, Christopher, who is the most active of his sons in terms of his right. literary legacy, uh, edited everything because he'd been acting as his father's editor already. For, okay. And and you know went to publishers and said, okay, look, if we include all these notes, I think we can put this together and not betray what my father wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a hardcore Tolkien nerd, hi, how you doing? You've read it. <laughs> you have. And I have. Okay. And so Sauron uh-huh. is the bad guy. Lord of the Rings. The ultimate baddie. The big bad. The huge right? eye. The giant, gigantic eye. Is Sauron. Okay. Sauron was not the first Dark Lord. <clears throat> the first Dark Lord was a guy named Melkor, who later took the name Morgoth. And let me get pointy-headed about Tolkien for a minute and just sure. explain to you that even in trying to create a pantheon of gods for his mythology, uh-huh. Tolkien couldn't stop being a Catholic. Eru, the one, the source of everything. Uh, God? God. Oh, okay. Sang into the void. Okay. And out of his song were born the Valar. Okay. And the Valar are essentially his versions of the Greek gods. We have okay. Manwe, who is the god of the sky and air and eagles. Uh, we have uh, Ulmo, who is the lord of the waters. We have Orome, who is the lord of the wilderness and the hunt. This sounds very Norse. Yes. Okay. Yes. A lot of the time they're depicted as looking more more Greek, more classical, but okay. there's a lot of there's a lot of that involved. Yeah. Um and then amongst them, mightiest of them okay. and most cunning of them was Melkor, who was okay. the spirit of fire. And Eru directed them all to sing a chorus, and he said, just sing. Okay. And they began to sing and they fell into harmony. Melkor heard the harmony mm-hmm. and said, I can make it better. That's very Catholic. Very Catholic. That's loose for And right he there. sang, yeah. yes, and yeah. he sang his own counterpoint, which caused everybody else to fall off key and creation. And basically the punchline of all that was what they were singing was they were singing creation into existence. Okay. And where Melkor had fucked with the melody you had the broken, not quite right, weird, ugly, dark parts of creation. Orcs. 
No, they come later. Oh, okay. But, but, yeah. Okay. And so, Melkor saw creation and immediately wanted to dominate it. He wanted to own it. Okay. And in the process of turning away from Eru, turning away from the rest of the Valar, Mm -hmm. he became Morgoth, the dark one, the foul one. Okay, so Melkor is Morgoth. Melkor and Morgoth are the same guy. Okay. Basically, Anakin is... Is Darth, is Darth Vader. Okay. Lucifer. Okay. Okay. Is Satan. Is, yes. Okay. Now, the Valar sang again, and out of creation were then born the lesser angels called Maiar, who were powerful spirits, but not gods. Okay. One of them, who's important going forward, is named Myron, who originally what served... A, what a vanilla nebbish name. Kind of, yeah. Is Myron. M-A-I-R-O-N. Yeah, it still yeah. sounds yeah, like Myron. Like Myron. Yeah. Myron. And, <laughs> and, so, and so he was... He's got a pouch protector. Yeah. You yeah, know. Yeah, pocket protector. Well, he's yeah. a nerd because... Yeah. Because uh, he is a Myron in service to Aule the Smith, who is the the god of... He's essentially Hephaestus, crafting. Right. Making stuff, building things. Sure, any, sure. Any kind of artifice, any kind of craft. Uh, fire the four, the fire of the four original <clears throat> okay. stuff, and so uh, originally he was the servant of the this creator crafter god, and then Melkor talked to him and was talking about no, I'm going to impose order on creation, and Maron went, I dig that. So he's kind of the anti Loki. Dig that, kind of. Yeah. And I dig that, mm-hmm. and eventually he became evil, unethical, twisted, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. like Morgoth because his pride corrupted him and he turned away from what he was supposed to be doing. More machine and now than man. And he became, yes, he became Sauron. So Sauron and was... Sauron was an angel. Okay. As opposed to a Valar who was essentially... A, a, a god. God scale. Right. Kind of, you know, D&D god scale. Yeah. You know, power. And so he saw it domination of order uh imposition of order on creation and domination over it wait 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 okay so the the thing that made them all yeah what was that thing Aru. Aru? Aru Luvatar, the one. so it's queen victoria and then she <laughs> has a bunch of grandkids <laughs> okay and then the little shitty one is uh, wilhelm the second yeah okay and he I goes around that. rattling his sword and he's like uh, i'm gonna impose german order on, on everything, everything else yeah okay i'm with you Which now it's funny if you study medieval and early modern history because the germans were the biggest fucking barbarians in europe up until the oh, prussians took oh over. god the, the romans were scared shitless of them well i'm i'm talking about early yeah. roman period they uh, yeah. not early roman early modern period mm-hmm. uh, the last person on earth you'd want to engineer anything was a german yeah because they're they're drunken loud barbaric louts oh there's there's a fun little part in in <laughs> caesar's uh de bella gallica where there's a couple where it's obvious that he ate magic mushrooms because he talks, he talks about these animals that don't have knees, and then if they fall over, they can never get up. And it's like, really, dude, really, yeah, you know. And then oh, he yeah. and but then he talks about like these weird ass Germanic tribes where like they will raise geese for fun, yeah. But you can't eat them. Uh, and yeah. then there's British tribes where they can't eat rabbits, yeah, and they can't eat chickens, and they can't yeah. eat other. And it's just like this weirdest hodgepodge. And he mentions the aurochs. Yes. 
and the aurochs is extinct by 1634 yeah and as we discussed in a previous episode the reason why is because there were redheads having sex in the black forest uh-huh. and that wiped that out wiped out all, all the, the aurochs all the wild yeah. cow yeah, yeah. But anyway, so Damn yeah. Damn you, gingers. Right? So. So that's why we mate with others now. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. So, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> so think about the Battle of Five Armies and The Hobbit. I haven't gotten to that movie. And. <gasps> okay. uh, no, it's the next right. one. Okay. But, and here's the thing I mentioned the movie. And I need to reass- let you know I do have some geek cred when it comes to this series. Okay. okay. My dad read to me. It was one of the first okay. things. I, now, I'm adopted by my dad. Yeah. Right. And I met him when I was about four. Um, and because uh, he was dating my mother. Um, and she's my yeah. biological mother. Anyway, um, one of the first books he read to me was her copy, the green copy oh, wow. of The Hobbit. Okay. And at that time, that book cost like $25 when she bought it, and she was making a buck twenty-five an hour. Wow. Then All she right. went and bought the red book of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And All that right. cost her seventy-five, no, eighty-five dollars at a buck twenty-five. Right. So he read to me the entire Hobbit. Okay. It has been read to me at a very young age. Okay. So it's in here somewhere. Okay. I don't remember Dick about the Battle of Five Armies. Okay. So, Although interestingly, Five Armies sounds a lot like a certain amount of central and allied powers fighting bit. each other. A little bit. Yeah. If you leave actually, out the Turkish, yeah, that's, that's yeah, it's a parallel. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but thematically. Mm. So at the end of the Hobbit, mm-hmm. uh, the dragon is dead, and Great, now I don't have uh, to watch it. Yeah, well, <laughs> did uh, the dragon get poured like gold on it in the book? Because that happens in the movie. Spoiler alert. Yeah, that's that's not that 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 is an invention for cinematic. Oh, okay, because Julie uh, and I both, my daughter and I both, love the fact that the red dragon became a gold dragon briefly. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, momentarily. Yeah. yeah, just just long enough to be like, oh hey, <laughs> this yeah. hurts. As a D and D nerd, yeah. that's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're immune to fire, so you know, dropping that on you really doesn't do much. But, right. You know, makes it hard for you to swim, uh, it, yeah. to to fly. Yeah. Okay. But so battle of five so armies. Battle of thematic. five armies. Um, the dwarves, mm-hmm. the elves. Uh, dwarves, what elves? The men of Lake Town. Right, that makes sense. The goblins. Okay, they're back. And the eagles. All wind up fighting. Now, originally, the battle is started because uh, Thor and Oakenshield is gold mad, crazy, wants oh, to try to man. get the Arkenstone of Thrain back. Right. And so he starts a fight that's originally three armies. Okay. Okay, him versus the elves and the men of Lake Town. Oh, okay. Then the goblins show up because they're all fighting, and if we kill all while they're all fighting, it's easier for us to kill all of them. Right, that's the take thing. over the mountain <clears throat> and you know set ourselves up. Yeah, sing more and songs. Then, yes, and then and then the eagles show up to save everybody's ass because 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 now I'm going to harp on this because this is an important point. Talking about Tolkien and allegory, you don't ever plan anything around the eagles. <laughs> Because the eagles represent the grace of God, you heathen bastards. Okay. So anybody who wants to try to say, why didn't they just ride the fucking eagles into Mordor? You're missing the fucking point. Okay. I I just, every time you mention the eagles, I think Don Henley. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't help... But like, uh, I'm like, okay, well, so where were the Eagles? Were they sitting on a corner in Winslow, Arizona? Arizona? You yeah. know? 
Um, you know, they've got yeah. the seven rings on their mind. Yeah, yeah nice. I like it. Nazgul want to rule me. The, yeah. the goblins want to drool me. Yeah, you know, you could filk that. Oh, yeah. Keep working on that. Okay, we'll do so, it. So, anyway, these five <laughs> armies wind up all fighting against each other. Yeah. And what's important about the way it is portrayed. Remember, he, he took all of his source material out of Nordic, Germanic myth is the, the archetypes that he's working from right and in those myths there was a witchy woman warfare, well yes but <laughs> moving on we're walking. we're walking in those myths the warrior archetype yeah. was was the thing and warfare sure. was was almost the goal right you, know, you got to take it for, to the limit for yes for germanic tribes <laughs> good day sir for Germanic tribes, uh, warfare was how a man uh, attained self-actualization, attained mm-hmm. his place in society, attained you know status, all of that. Right, and so found his center. Yes, yeah. So in in Germanic myth and the sources that Tolkien is essentially kind of working from, sure, war was this glorious, purposeful thing. Sounds very British. World War One, too. Yes, but. The way he writes the Battle of Five Armies mm-hmm. is anything but. It is random. It is pointless. From the very beginning, Bilbo is saying, why the hell are we fighting? So Bilbo is the everyman for God's sakes, Bilbo is the yeah. everyman for us. And the leadership are all champing at the bit to get fighting over stuff that the everyman is like, okay, look, there's plenty of this to go around. Why are you willing to kill people over it? This is stupid. Right. Just like the Imperial Powers World War One. Right. And the experience of the battle is chaotic and random and ugly. Uh Bilbo is an unreliable narrator throughout the whole book. This sure. is part of the uh, literary criticism. Well, he just wants to get into. back home. Well, yeah. Like every by, British soldier. By the end of it, yeah. By every Tom like every Tommy, he just wants to go right. home. And in the middle of the Battle of Five Armies, he gets knocked on the head by a rock dropped by a goblin, and he misses the whole ending of it, which, by the way, <laughs> is kind of similar to what happened to Tolkien in World War World War One. Oh my God! Yeah, so Bilbo so is Tolkien. Bilbo is, in many ways, a self-insert. Not right. not perfectly, but <clears throat> in many ways, he, he fulfills that role. Um, it's a massive battle of attrition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's ended by the intervention of the eagles, maybe aircraft, and Bayorn. Remember him? Um. The Werebear. Oh, yeah. That guy was cool. Yeah. He yeah. gets cooler. I don't okay. want to say too much, okay. but dude. Nice. Uh, and he shows up. And by the way, tanks. Oh, you know, okay. Think about the way a bear, bear-shaped bear druid in D&D works. Yeah. Bayorn, essentially. I, I play one, does, so You yeah. do, yeah. So, <clears throat> and, and as Thorin is lying on his deathbed after the battle in uh-huh. the book. Right. Uh, he says to to Bilbo because Bilbo apologizes for you know causing trouble and all this stuff and and Thorin says no 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 I'm the one who needs to apologize to you he has he has a Scrooge McDuck that's cool that he's he has, got he the a humility moment. a couple times yeah. yeah and he says if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold it would be a merrier world so he really wanted a peaceful easy yeah. feeling nice and in the battle. I'm not even going to dignify it. Thorin, Philey, and Kylie of the Band of Dwarves are all killed. Uh-huh. 
Um, and and the whole thing is described, like I said, as being terrifying, ugly, oh, random, yeah, just stupid, apocalyptic, like, like, apocalyptic, and stupid. The stupidity yeah. part I can't overemphasize. Now, Lord of the Rings, Sauron, again, like I explained, started out as a lesser angel who served a god of essentially technology. Okay. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He served. Okay. okay. He, ser- he so he sure. was an apprentice god of technology. Okay? Right. He was the most cunning maker of stuff that there was amongst the Maiar. Sure. Okay. And he fell from grace by wanting to impose his own will on creation, like his master Melkor and Morgoth. Part of the this is part of the Catholic background of the whole thing, which mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm trying not to touch on too hard. Uh, oh, go because, for it. Well, man. yeah. I, you know. Again. Um, oh, this is gonna be it's a two part episode. Uh, you know that. Um, Again, the book was three parts. Yes. Well, so. so um, and so Sauron fell from grace by wanting to impose his will mm-hmm. on creation, just like Morgoth had. And when Morgoth was eventually, after doing all kinds of horrible things, mm-hmm. Morgoth got <laughs> crumpled up into, into a black, essentially a black hole, a sphere, and okay. flung out into... Out outside of creation, out onto the edge of existence, okay. where he's chained down and imprisoned, and we'd never hear from him. It's again. like a perverse version of what happens to Loki on the Isle of Silence. Yes, or what happens to the Titans, Prometheus, even. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, who is a Titan himself, yes. I believe. Yeah. Yes, um, or Maui <clears throat> from Moana. Well, yeah, nice. Um, That's from my daughter. I like that. When I read to her all the Greek myths, yeah. her first thing was like, I read to her about Prometheus. She's like, well, that's like what happened to Maui. It's insane. Okay. She's six. You're, you're she, she has creepy. like all these. Yes, yeah, she is. <laughs> um, the, she has all these choose your own adventure books. I bought yeah, her a bunch, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'm reading her Norse mythology now. Yeah. And so I'm reading to her all these stories and like half the, you know, half the, the characters. She's like, oh, I met him already. Oh, I met her already. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, in the... Oh, okay. And then she's like comparing it to the Greeks. Oh, yeah. So... No, you... Yeah. No, I'm... I'm, Trouble. No, I'm stoked. (laughs) So, Sauron sets himself up in Mordor. Okay, now Sauron is not Morgoth. No, Sauron Sauron is like Morgoth's... Morgoth's apprentice. Apprentice. He's the Mickey Mouse to Morgoth's... Okay. Yeah. So, he sets himself up in Mordor... Mm-hmm. And he starts creating orc. Well, he starts creating more orcs. Orcs are originally a creation of Morgoth. Okay. And evil cannot create anything in Middle It can Earth. only pervert what it is It can pervert good. what has already been made. Right. So Morgoth kidnapped elves. some of the earliest elves and okay. broke them and twisted them and turned them into orcs. Right. Which interestingly means that absent mishap, goblins and orcs are immortal. The same way elves are. Explain. So elves, right? In I know. World, yeah, absent mishap. Absent mishap, right. they're going to live forever. Right. So he took elves, uh-huh. twisted them up, uh-huh. broke them up, turned them into orcs. Okay. Well, here's the deal. Yeah. Tolkien never really explains to us exactly how they reproduce, other than saying it has to do with spawning, that they're no longer male and female, that they somehow, okay. you know, do something. You get them wet after midnight. Up. Yeah, and they come yeah. up out of the... Mogwais. Yeah, yeah. Mogwai, yeah. Um, and so, but the thing is... Mogwais is, by the way, uh, Samwise's father. <sighs> nice. No, it's, old, it's Gaffer. 
African. Jesus, he's got a name? Yeah. He's wow. Got a name. God damn right he's got a name. That's true. I okay, mean, Tolkien, Tolkien. Yeah, he spent four detailed, chapters on yeah. a on a on a on a donkey. Yeah, so Yeah, he spends he spends five pages describing the curls in the hair on Bilbo's feet. Of course, Samwise I'm wow. exaggerating I'm exaggerating but, a little but bit. But only by a little. But yeah. a little that's that's actually what turned my mother off from ever being able to read the books. The furry feet was 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 the just like how much time are you going to spend describing this? Oh my god, is something going to fucking happen? <laughs> um, and she put the book down and went on to other things. My dad and I, of course, are like, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, hit that vein. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so where was I? Uh, why orcs Sorry. are oh, orcs. immortal? So so. Um, it never says anywhere mm-hmm. that in the process of doing that, he takes away their immortality. immortality and okay. we know that there are goblin kings, goblin chieftains, there are uh-huh. orcs uh-huh. that showed up two generations previously to be trouble for somebody in somebody's ancestry uh-huh. who show up in in the books. Okay. And so... They're in, they they have the they same are lifespan. Okay. Not, you know, in D and D, we're used to hearing that orcs have a nasty, brutish, you know, Cold, short, short lives. lives. Yeah, you know, but that could be cultural, in, not biological. In, yeah. yeah, but in Tolkien, yeah, no, they're living under the mountain as long as you know nothing happens to them. Right, crawling around in the dark places, etc. So, so he's making more orcs. He's crafting the weapons and the tools for his orcs and his armies to use in his uh, uh, efforts against the free peoples of the world. Now, real quick, yeah. he's in Mordor. He's in Mordor. What was in Mordor before he got there? It was an empty wasteland. It, it was, it was so, like Badlands. It's essentially the Ruhr Valley. Kind of. Yes, okay. Actually. So... Mount Doom mm-hmm. in the Lord of the Rings is described as pumping all of this horrible black smoke into the air. It really is the Ruhr Valley. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he is, uh, not only is it just Mount Doom, but it's all the forges and the foundries and all the everywhere that all the weapons and armor and equipment and mm-hmm. massive siege tools and everything for his army are being crafted. Right. And so. There's this mechanized. The forces of evil have this mechanized industrial, right? Soot stain. They're not stinky. making craft work like the elves, because the elves have like orc hist or whatever it's called. Orc wrist. Yeah. Glandering. Uh, yeah, all these cool sounding, yeah. very pretty, very white, very swoopy, curvy. Yes. Yeah, and you you get the idea that they were made with great care and great art, and like each one was handcrafted, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So like. Probably the fire they used was even pure. Yeah. You know, whereas you get the feeling that in, in Mordor, it's, we're pumping out gladiuses. Come on, let's oh, just yeah, go. Oh, yeah, not even gladiuses. Yeah. If you look at, you know, you look at what the Uruk-hai yeah, they're just like in the movie, they're just sharpened pieces <clears throat> of metal with a spike sticking off the back. Yeah. You know, and, and that was that was an intentional choice on Jackson's part mm-hmm. in creating the aesthetic <clears throat> of the film okay. to keep in to, to keep with the spirit of uh, what Tolkien described right. in Mordor being this essentially industrial wasteland. Right. Okay. So it's like pumping out so much smoke that yeah. it's it's trying to yeah. to kill a sunrise. <sighs> You're gonna have a heartache expect, tonight. Expect, expect to hear from my second, sir. <laughs> so, and then, 
mm-hmm. there are three great sieges. Now, real quick, over the course of the Lord of the Rings, Sauron is is an eyeball at this point. He's not a man. <sighs> yes, he he has what not, happened he has to not yet been able to take physical form. What happened was what happened to him. He was, never had physical form. No, he did have physical form. Okay, at the dawn of creation, uh-huh. like the other Valar and Maiar, he had a physical form. Okay. The His only way form. this would be more fun is if I had gotten drunk yeah. first, and oh, then you're explaining yeah. it to me. Oh, yeah. Or if I yeah. had gotten drunk and you were asking me these questions. Oh, my God. That'd be so much oh, better. Oh, yeah. We, we might, might have to do to a separate episode. Yes. <laughs> so, so at the beginning of creation, uh-huh. all all the Maiar, all the Valar had physical form. I, I also really like the fact that, like, to answer my question, you literally have to say, okay, but at the beginning of creation, <laughs> well, yeah. you got to go well, to the beginning. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then... Over the course of the first age, uh-huh. uh, Sauron's form. Originally, he was beautiful to behold. All of them were beautiful to sure. behold. Morgoth turned to selfishness and evil and his own plots, and he became corrupted and uh-huh. lo- looking like a vampire. Sauron, uh-huh. once he became Sauron, following Morgoth, he imagined Vader under the mask. Right. You know, so he kind of like sallow, wasted. What they made uh, Wormtooth to, or Wormtongue to look like. Yeah. In many ways, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. And, and then, there's that parallel. And then at the yeah. end of the second age, so the uh-huh. first age ended with Morgoth being banished, like I described. Sure. And then uh, Sauron mm-hmm. managed to talk his way out of getting punished. Okay. At the end of the first age, oh, because he really he is warm tongue. Yes, he was very cunning. He right. Was very fluent, you know, and he got back into the good graces of the elves. Uh huh. Who were living at that time? We're not a forgiving race. Who generally aren't. No. He got on their good side. Okay. And then um, he. Wait, hold on. I'm sorry, I'm screwing this up. Morgoth got multiple strikes before he was finally banished. He was the one who got in good with the elves. Okay. Sauron uh, wound up traveling from Middle Earth, where Mm -hmm. he had been with Sauron when Sauron was finally thrown out of the universe. Okay. And he was taken prisoner. By the army that had defeated Morgoth. Okay. And the gods, the mm-hmm. Valar, gave men, who uh-huh. by this time had entered the world, their own island. Okay. In the middle of the ocean, between Middle Earth and the sunny lands of the far west where the gods dwelt. Okay. okay. They got their island. And Morgoth talked the kings of men into taking him back with them to the island. And he was so contrite, and he was he was so very sorry. Right, and, you know all this. We stuff. love a good redemption. Yes, and uh, over time he corrupted the kings of men into driving them to rebel against the gods, okay. against the Valar, and the Valar smashed the island, mm-hmm. and the ancestors of Aragorn are the loyalist kings okay. and their followers who fled the island before that happened. Okay. Okay. Um, and so he, he in the destruction of mm-hmm. the island, mm-hmm. he was he lost his physical form and he became a specter and he had to flee. Okay. And that's the okay. beginning of third age. Okay. okay. So he's a giant eyeball. Giant. At that point. Yes. And as he gains more power and regains control, he's gradually becoming more and more physical. And depending mm-hmm. on what interpretation you have of the text. Mm-hmm. At some point, in some of his notes, Tolkien indicated that, no, no, Sauron does have a form at the base of 
uh, Dolgulder at the base of his tower. Okay. There is there is a physical form there, but he's not strong enough yet to venture out. Oh, it's, and it's, so the yeah. eye is how he interacts with the world. He does gotcha. still have a physical form coalescing. Or, no, he's still just the eye, but if he gets okay. a hold of the ring, he'll be able to f- get a physical form. So, so he's the out there in Mordor. Yes. Building his stuff up. Yeah. Um, how, to, how to put Do people know he's out there building his stuff up? So... so all that smoke's got to be raising... You've seen, no, you've seen yeah. the first couple of parts of The Hobbit. Yeah. Okay. First two movies. Okay. So all of that stuff going on in Mirkwood with the necromancer... Yes. That is the first time anybody twigs to the fact that, oh shit, Sauron Something's is up. back. Right. And that happens 50 years before Lord of the Rings. Right, right. So by the time of the Lord of the Rings, oh yeah, they know he's there because he's built enough of an army well, and to Gondor take over. Is, we've Gondor been holding off Mordor. Yeah. 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 So they know they okay. know it's him. They know he's there. Okay. But they don't have they the didn't military stop strength to stop to it. Okay. They, don't have, they, don't, they don't know how to end him. Right. Until they end him, they can't win. Gotcha. And the, right. the rings have existed this whole time? Yeah. Well, Sauron cre- was was responsible for the creation of the rings. He tricked an elvish crafter oh, okay. into making the three, the seven, and the nine. Mm-hmm. And then he created the one. Right. As a master ring over all of them. He basically... Mm-hmm built code in a technological yeah. sense he built code into the master ring to hack all of the others and if you mm-hmm. have one of the other rings of power on and he has the master ring on right he knows where you are and he can you know do stuff you lose you lose all of your bonuses to your saving throws against anything he wants to do to you right okay so as soon as he put the one ring on mm-hmm. the elves and the dwarves were spiritual enough to recognize that oh this shit, is a problem they took the rings off oh. men being men being mortal being limited sure. didn't sure. pick up on it and they became the nazgul gotcha so anyway okay so in lord of the rings mm-hmm. there are these three great sieges that happen and again this echoes trench warfare okay okay there is the siege of helm's deep mm-hmm in which there are uh, thousands of, of Rohanian civilians mm-hmm. stuck in a fortification that Saruman has ordered his orcs to completely wipe out. Okay. So we see total warfare. Orthanc, where um, Saruman has his tower and is finally defeated by the Ents. Yeah. Okay, and that's, that is... Okay, I remember that, that one from na- the movie. Literally yeah. nature versus industry. Right. You know... That's that's Eric Maria remark. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. There's still a butterfly. Yeah. You know. And then Minas Tirith, mm-hmm. the the siege of of the the city of Minas, Minas Tirith. That's where he gets all the ghosts to come help him, right? Uh, well, that's the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, which happens it. outside of Minas Tirith. But it's it's in a it's, it's the relief of yeah. the siege, right? And that represents world war because the forces that are besieging Minas Tirith are not only the orcs from Mordor, Mm -hmm. but they are men from near and far Harad, men from Cand, and the Dunlendings, who were enemies, ancestral enemies, Mm -hmm. of the uh, men of the Westmark, the the men of Rohan. Okay. So we have all of these nations that are enslaved by Sauron or who willingly worship him, acting as his servants. You know, the, the Oliphant... Being from you know Far Harad, 
right. uh, the Corsairs being from Nirhara and, mm-hmm. and you know all these different groups, mm-hmm. it's world war, fighting against right. all the massed forces of the free peoples who show up. Okay, so we have all of these parallels to both world wars going on there. Mm-hmm. And I got more to say about who the heroes are and how they interact and how all that works and how that ties in with his experiences in the war. Cool. But we've hit the hour mark. Yeah. And we are going to need to break this up. So what do you think coming out of this? <sighs> what is what is your takeaway from what I've told you so far? Other than the fact that, oh my God, this dude is a fucking dork. No, actually, that's not... <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking that. Right. Um, uh, well, I, I got to say, like, obviously... Um, I, you know, here's here's what I'm saying. He is a man informed way more by his experiences than most writers make obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's because of our proximity to him in age. Maybe it's because of the fact that the things that informed his experience were such world-breaking things that we've studied them quite a bit. Yeah. But it's it's so clear. Yeah. And you talked about him not liking allegory. Yeah. But it's so clear that he's he's not writing allegory. He's writing his life. Yeah. Just in a different way. Yeah. And it's allegory. But he's not doing it on purpose. He's not purposely going. Yeah. He's, he's not animal farming it. Yeah. You know no, what I mean? He's not. Yeah. He's he's he's. Yeah. You know, there's a thing that my English teacher friends and I say, and it's that um, science fiction. Is about now. Yeah. Historical fiction is about now. Yeah. <laughs> Anything you write is about the time that you're living in, yeah. and you can't escape it. No. He didn't just not escape it. He fully tilted into it, though. Yeah. Like he, he leaned in. He absolutely did. Um, it's given me more of an appreciation for him because for the longest time, I've I've kind of been I'm not an anti-Tolkienist, but more like here's a guy who needed an editor. <laughs> um, and I haven't well, read his he had, he like had, he did have a tin ear for poetry. Yeah, um, as but, as a as a super fan, yeah, some of the poetry is just egregiously awful. Well, and and I, you know, I've only had the books read to me. I've never read them myself. Yeah, um, and I anticipate I'll probably be reading them with my kids soon. Yeah. Um, and so I've only ever seen the movies. Well, it just so happens that the guy who I'm like this guy needs an editor found the one director. Or, or the director who found his works and decided, I'm going to make movies out of this, is the one director who's like, this guy needs an editor. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I... Well, at least in the Lord of the Rings series. In every, in, in, in in every series he, he writes. Yeah. Um, in terms of, like, he just goes on and on with yeah. it. I'm oh, not yeah. saying that he, he wrote yeah. bad movies at all, no. even. I, I oh, loved no. the Lord no. of the Rings movies. <clears throat> I don't need to watch them for another 20 years again, though. Yeah. Um, like, when my brother and I went and saw King Kong, yeah. I turned to my brother two hours into it. I'm like, oh my God, how long is this movie? And his response was to turn to me. This is when he's back from Iraq, right? And just briefly, though. He turns to me. He's like, it's a Peter Jackson movie. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, yeah. No, it's true. Like, it's just, no, it's a thing. That's it. Yeah, you no, know? it's a thing. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting is, you know what genre it was Peter Jackson originally got his bones in? No. Earned his, earned his bones in. If, if you say dramatic shorts, I'm going to laugh. No. Okay. Horror. Well, a lot of people do. Dead, dead alive. I don't know. Okay, it's yeah. a, it's, it's a, it's a truly only a New Zealander could have come up with it. Zombie movie. Okay. It is way over the top. It is mm-hmm. horribly disgusting. Like, oh my sure. god. And the thing is, if you if you want to break down 
the Lord of the Rings movies and look mm-hmm. at the way they are shot. Oh, he's still pulling on it. It is critically important that mm-hmm. whoever did, at the very least, the Fellowship of the Ring mm-hmm. needed to be a horror director. Mm. And I can talk more about that in our next episode. Please do. And get all pointy head and philosophical about Please do. his Catholicism as an influence, too. Sure. But Tolkien's Catholicism, sure. Jackson, I don't know what his leanings are, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I like that. Um, I'm a sucker for... Yeah, I'm a sucker for, like, you know, I teach the I needed. So yeah. I teach, like, oh, by the way, here's what was happening at the time. Yeah. That's why you have the, the this line right here. Yeah. You know, and, I, and so I'm a sucker for that. And I studied a lot of history around World War One, yeah. So it is gratifying to see a lot of that coming through in stuff that I've shown my kids. Yeah. Um, partly because it'll make it easier to explain World War One and World War Two to them, mm. uh, but also because you know those are yeah. things that I that I dig. So that's cool. that's what's coming out for me. I yeah. still am wondering how the hell Tom Bombadil figures into all of it. Uh, so are an awful lot of literary critics. Yeah. So um, and and the only thing I can think of is like he was so into world creation that again here's a guy who needs an editor. You know, he, One, he made a sandbox and the characters just happened to walk through that. Part. Yeah, there there are there are all kinds of theories about kind of what his what his intent was. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot of evidence that Tom Bombadil and his wife are just straight up, I'm going to insert myself and my wife, whom I love dearly and think is the most beautiful woman oh, in the wow. world okay. into this story as these characters who mm-hmm. have a role mm-hmm. but aren't really the driving force behind the story like so it's director cameo they're here yeah director cameo they're here uh they impart some wisdom but that's it and they're gone and we move on you know and and yeah because because he he was it's it's really really sweet how effusive he was Mm. about how just besotted he was with edith interesting like all his life do you think that some of that had to do with the fact that his mom died early well, they were both orphans. Yeah. He was an orphan, she was an orphan, and they were both looking for love and connection, and they Family. were able to give it to each other. Yeah. Okay. So. All right. Um, I think it's appropriate to ask for uh, book recommendations in light of who we're talking about. So. Read The Silmarillion. Okay. And I'm done. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's That's what I have to say right now. Okay. Uh, I uh, am not going to recommend a book because okay. uh, this whole thing is an advertisement for Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. So. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, all right, well. If you want to shout at us, if yeah. you catch me making an error regarding uh, the timeline of Sauron's descent into evil, uh, which I know I've made, but please <laughs> remind me where I did, uh, you can uh, shout at us at, at @geekhistorytime. Uh, you can also get a hold of me on Twitter at, at @ehblaylock. And I'm at at the harmony, uh, and uh, yeah. Un- until next time, I'm Damien Harmony, and I'm Ed Blaylock, and keep rolling twenties.